This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Ansami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardoj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in the Midwest, we're delighted to welcome to this program a special guest, Brad Wine. Brad Wine is global co-chair of Morrison and Forster's litigation department and also serves as chair of the firm's Israel practice. In January 2019, Brad Wine was reappointed by the President of the United States to a five-year term on the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, the governing body of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. He has also been appointed to the Council's Executive Committee and Chair of the Museum's Committee on Holocaust Denial and State-Sponsored Anti-Semitism. And with this uh, introduction, we welcome to this program Brad Wine. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, Brad. Joel, Natasha, it's so good to speak with you. Thank you for having me. Brad, the influential UK newspaper, The Guardian, in a report late last year, stated, I quote, Almost two-thirds of young American adults do not know that six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust, and more than one in ten believe Jews caused the Holocaust, a new survey has found, revealing shocking levels of ignorance amongst those and about the greatest crime of the 20th century. Uh, Now, these report came uh, from the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany. Uh, Brad, what are your thoughts on the data provided, and are these statistics prepared by the Conference of Jewish Material Claims against Germany close to the realities on the ground when it comes to individuals being aware of the Holocaust, a horrific crime of the 20th century? Joel, it's an important question. Before I answer, I just want want to say that um, the the views that I'm going to express to, to you and your listeners and to Natasha today are those of my own. Uh, not of my firm and and not of the museum or the council or the committee that I chair. Um, But the data that you report is um, sobering. Uh, It's disappointing, but it's not surprising. Uh, As we temporally get further away from uh, what you, I think, appropriately characterized as the greatest crime of the 20th century, knowledge of and information about uh, the Holocaust becomes more tenuous. And I think one of the key reasons for that is that the importance of education in civics, in politics, in um, history, uh, have been increasingly on the decline. Uh, And we see a less informed um, populace here in the United States, uh, both adults and young adults. Again, while it's disappointing to see that there's either misinformation about the Holocaust or just an absolute lack of knowledge about it, it's not surprising. Uh, And I think that the greatest antidote 
for that dynamic is sources of education. It is things like the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., local museums throughout the United States, programs with educators to identify and educate uh, on this topic, Um, because it's not just a history issue. It's not just an issue of a chapter, a very dark one in our world's history, but rather it is a chapter from which very relevant issues arise and are applicable to today's life, how we comport ourselves in a civil and just society, how we treat other human beings, and truly and unfortunately, crimes against humanity, mass crimes against individuals and groups, and genocide remain relevant today, sadly. Uh, And the only way that we can combat them is with fully understanding um, our history and being able to identify the conditions that lead to them to prevent them from going forward. Indeed, Brad, you're so right to mention the great concerns that we all have uh, when educators are not able to inspire, inform, and uh, empower a new generation of students. In fact, uh, recently in a conversation with Governor Phil Bryant, a uh, guest host of America's Roundtable and a board member of the International Leaders Summit, uh, he was referring to the greater concern about education in America. And in an article posted by Forbes on April 24, 2020, titled Why Kids Know Even Less About History Now and Why It Matters. Uh, It also relays these somber statistics, and I quote, scores in history and geography have declined from five years ago. Those in civics are flat. Only 15% of eighth graders scored proficient or above in U.S. history, along with about a quarter in civics and geography, unquote. And it certainly validates the concerns that you raised about the importance of uh, civics, uh, history, geography uh, being shared in our school system today in America. Uh, it's a national issue, uh, and it's not limited to the Holocaust. It's, it, it speaks to broader issues about um, how we interact with each other, whether we take a, a civil and knowledgeable tact with one another. But yes, at its core, this dynamic about learning and education does run the risk of repeating failures that we've had in the past and fundamental flaws of human nature. And the best way to approach that is to make sure that through a variety of means, the best of them uh, would be through our our educational system, uh, to make sure that we have a well-informed populace, that, that folks understand that situations that we're dealing with today are ones either Uh, identical to or very similar to ones that our parents, our grandparents, uh, great-grandparents going well back generations have confronted before. And instead of repeating some of the same mistakes, um, perhaps we can very well learn from them. Uh, Brad, along the concerns that you raised, uh, also in her brilliant and thought-provoking piece called The Dark Side of Holocaust Education, published in the National Affairs in Autumn Edition last year, Ruth Weiss, the Martin Peretz Professor of Yiddish Literature and Comparative Literature Emerita at Harvard University and Senior Fellow at the Tikwa Fund, says, I quote, 
Education that centers on the Holocaust violates the spirit of America, which is about the attainment and protection of freedom and constant drive for self-improvement. Americans and Jews won their freedom in wars of independence. America fought a civil war against slavery and to remain united. Nazism and communism would rule the world had it not been for American military resistance. Israelis fight for their existence every day of their lives and suffer great losses whenever they relax their vigilance. Now, as ever, only the will to fight for the good can defeat the forces of evil, and a peace-loving people that does not train for self-defense will suffer the fate of the Jews of Europe. And she continues, the perversity of teaching about the Holocaust rather than American and Jewish struggles for freedom extracts the wrong lesson from a horrifying precedent. Unquote. Brad, how do we counteract the attempts of using of the Holocaust education as a political tool in American schools, which reduces this horrific historical event to abstract messages of hate and victims, instead of teaching about the Holocaust in the wider context of Judeo-Christian values and the rule of law, which protects life, liberty, and private property? It's an important question, and while I'm not an educator, and I won't ever profess to know perfect answers to complex questions like that one, I do think how you engage people, and I do think that how you teach some of these lessons is as if not more important than the substance of the lesson itself, so that when we're talking about a chapter in our history, we can look at it in the context of of acts that happened, narratives, witnesses, and whatnot. But if we're engaging people, particularly young people, well, we're asking them to analyze this through their own moral lens, to develop a moral lens, whether it's Judeo-Christian or otherwise, and, and identify what is right and what is wrong about being a passive witness, a perpetrator. What if you were a victim? How would you act? Would you fight for uh, as part of resistance, or would you try to stay alive? I mean, these are all issues that real human beings confronted mere decades ago, two generations ago. And you can look at this in simplistic terms, as Ruth identified, as victimhood, of evil and whatnot. But there's a way to, to process and digest that history through a moral lens that also develops people's sense of, of right and wrong. Because you know, we, we talk about terms of perpetrators, Nazis, and of victims, Jews, but not just Jews, uh, homosexuals, Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, and, you know, countless individuals that were, were killed by the virtue of who they were. There were as many, if not more, observers, folks that witnessed what was going on and said or did nothing. So when we're teaching these lessons, and we have the opportunity with young people to say, if you see something wrong happening, what do you think you should do? How do you hope you would act? That then translates into those those young adults having their own moral framework, their own blueprint that they take forward in their own lives, and it guides them on how they will act toward their fellow human beings. And, and that is the most perverse 
uh, lesson that I think we can learn from the Holocaust is not only how we don't repeat that chapter in our history, but how do we learn to be better human beings toward one another? Indeed, Brad. On the U.S. and European front, we're hearing more about the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement uh, that is basically targeting Israel and Jewish communities uh, within uh, the West Bank, and it's also known as Judea and Samaria. And we're hearing that it is truly impacting a great number of universities across the country and a younger population. But interestingly enough, Natasha and I, through the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, have been able to travel through the West Bank, the Judea Samaria region, and met with both Arab and Jewish families, those who were working in companies uh, that were providing jobs and opportunities and educational opportunities to these individuals. And we heard from them firsthand that how BDS would affect their jobs, their livelihood, their future. Future. And um, as we return to what's happening here in the United States, we were certainly surprised by a recent study that was conducted by the University of Maryland, a critical policies survey that they did, and whereby individuals that were aware of the BDS movement, some 48% of Democrats and 8% of Republicans supported the BDS movement. So the question for us to uh, certainly explore is, what can Americans and Europeans do to address the growth of the BDS movement, which targets Jewish Arab families and others in the communities that are trying to provide for their families, and certainly is an assault to Israel's sovereignty. It's an important and perplexing question. And I, my hope is when we step back and look at the several years where individuals who've espoused a boycott, divestment, and sanctions approach to Israel have been pursuing that campaign. It's it's my belief that BDS is a failure. Israel continues to thrive financially and otherwise. Businesses from Israel continue to lead the world on innovation in a variety of fields, whether it's life sciences or technology, uh, agriculture, you name it. And the world continues to benefit from that innovation. At its core, the BDS movement I believe, is a 21st century version of an anti-Semitic trope, which I'm not suggesting in any way um, that people cannot rightly be critical of various policies that the Israeli government, regardless of who is leading it, might espouse. But I do think that when individuals consistently and repeatedly treat uh, Israel differently and with a different standard than other countries around the world, and let alone countries with far worse records on human rights, on treating individuals with basic human dignity, then there is, there is something key about why they're focusing on Israel. And I think, frankly, it's because they're focusing on a Jewish state. And this is something that we've seen repeated for generations. At the premise of, of, of your question, Joel, and, and the observation, the work that you and Natasha and the folks that you lead uh, have done in visiting Israel and bringing leaders to Israel, 
Israel and visiting uh, Judea and Samaria and, and meeting with Jews and Arabs, Israelis and Palestinians, I think at the core of that, the people most affected, uh, Israelis and their Palestinian neighbors, want a peace. They want a time where their children can grow up uh, and live in safety and security and enjoy basic human dignity. And all of those things are interrelated, and there's nothing about a boycott, divestment, or sanctions regime that gets us to that goal. Rather, at its core, and as you identified, it's working together, it's living together, it's understanding one another that gets you there. And, and a BDS movement is the exact opposite. It is creating walls between individuals and trying to exert influence in a way that I believe is counterproductive to a lasting peace for either Israel or uh, for Palestinians. And one need look no further than developments in the region with Israel's Arab neighbors to see that rather than going in a direction that we had gone for decades uh, through boycott and sanctions, particularly um, the Arab boycott of Israel, that we're heading very much in a different direction, which I think um, creates a new future for Israel and, and hopefully also for, uh, for the Palestinians as well. Brad, how do you see the Abraham Accords strengthening Israel's ties and the Jewish state's normalization of relations with Gulf states Bahrain and United Arab Emirates, as well as with the Arab League's other member states, Morocco and Sudan? Has this initiative already expanded trade and commerce in the region? I, I think it is the codification of what has been happening uh, very quietly and under the surface for, for some time. I'm hopeful that it is the beginning of a new chapter that not only involves these leading Arab countries, but will involve far more of them. Uh, you saw Israel uh, over the last decade building ties across the African continent. You've seen Israel and its leaders build ties in India uh, and throughout Asia. And now we are witnessing a historic moment, which really is unprecedented in a way that we haven't seen since uh, the Camp David Accords of, of several decades ago. We're seeing a normalization and a recognition that these countries can do more for each other and for the region working together in a harmonious fashion, whether it's through educational exchange or through business and industrial exchanges and political dialogue, then they could accomplish in what was essentially a Cold War, non-recognition and an active process of, of boycott and, and non-alignment. So I think what we're seeing in the Abraham Accords is the beginning of a new chapter in the region. I'm hopeful that that will also include a revision of or revisiting of the common topics on the Arab street that I think led to the hostilities between broad swaths of the Arab world and Israel. So we're seeing efforts on the part of a number of these Arab countries to look at things like uh, Holocaust education and how their schools and communities discuss topics related to Israel, related to history, related to the Jewish people, that I think can only result in a less hostile, more stable 
region that will be the benefit not only of the people that live there, um, but truly uh, for the entire world. Thank you, Brad Wine, for joining us on America's Roundtable. It's truly an honor uh, to have you participate, and we certainly appreciate your insights and your important responses uh, to these vital issues of the day. And thank you, Brad, for your leadership. Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, and I look forward to to listening and, and participating in future conversations. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Ansami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardoj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.